New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the right hand and the left hand paths of spirituality, magic, and mysticism. My guest is James Tunney, truly a Renaissance man, a poet, a painter, a scholar, a barrister who has lectured around the world on international law, a novelist, author of two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland. I don't recognize who she is, and he's also written some wonderful books about the mystical path, the mystical accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, and The Mystery of Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. I'm so pleased to be with you again and to be able to continue our conversations. We're getting a very positive audience response to our conversations. So, I'm happy to be with you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jeffrey. I was just thinking that we're speaking about the left-hand path, and I always wanted to say that I um, I should have taken that left-hand turn at Albuquerque, as Bugs Bunny says. Let me ask, since we're beginning, I'm a right-handed person. Are, are you also right-handed, as most people are? Yeah, I'm right-handed, like... like uh, 90% of people, as they say. So anything I say about the left-handed path has n nothing derogatory about left-handed people. I know they can get a hard time. So uh, uh, that's, that's a good point to make at the start. Let's begin then by defining uh, when we talk about the right hand and the left hand path in the spiritual, mystical, and magical traditions. Uh, what exactly are we talking about? Bear with me for a minute if I try, try and, and lay lay out uh, the, the spectrum of opinions on this or, or the context. It's a contested term, and uh, like every dual system, it's very, very limited. So in the end, we probably come back to some path in between or some non-dual overview. But the distinction is reflects a very, very deep kind of archetypal division that we find in culture. We can, of course, we, we left hand, right hand, and we have other ideas behind that. Uh, we can male, uh, female, feminine, masculine. We even odd metaphorical ideas or distinctions. Sheeps as gray, sheep as, as grazers, goats as browsers. We have Cain and Abel, uh, a whole load of distinctions and archetypes that uh, suggest some kind of broad distinction. So when we come to uh, left-hand path in, in the context of esoteric thought or spirituality or mysticism or magic, we have a, a quite distinct uh, history. In, in Western terms, people usually refer back to Blavatsky, and she was referring to an Indian tradition, the Tantric tradition, and this is really the source of the distinction. And the distinction... Uh, the distinction in contemporary academic discourse is uh, revolves around some very, very basic ideas. For example, 
the idea that it's antinomian, antinomian refers to against the law in the Greek sense, that the practices go against the grain in some way, that it's countercultural, going against the mainstream, anti-establishment, that it's uh, anti-authoritarian sometimes. So the antinomian quality is, is a, a feature which, which is associated with the left-hand path, although I would immediately point out that antinomianism exists within Christianity, and within Christianity, that term has had the most currency. So uh, uh, certain uh, groups within Protestant Protestantism would be defined as antinomian. So we can't make a, a simplistic distinction. And in that sense, it refers to going against the Mosaic law or not having to abide by the law. Another feature which academics relate to the left-hand path is the idea of a focus on individuality. Uh, the idea that if you're on the left-hand path, you're more focused on the individual uh, path. Now, I disagree with that. I think that that focus on individuality is a focus on the individuality for certain elites who have made a path. It's not a, it's not a focus on a mass individuality as we get in some of the religions or in, in the main religions. Uh, another feature is that it, it, it's, it's more embodied in this world. So it's, it's more in the here and now, in the world that we live in, and it's not as convinced as about the afterlife or the significance of the afterlife or perhaps the significance of karma as the right-hand path. Uh, so the antinomianism, the focus on individuality, uh, also we, we might think about the idea of self-deification. There is an idea, I would perhaps put it in terms of ego-deification, that the left-hand path can be seen as more egotistic as opposed to ego uh, egoist. And that's certainly a very strong feature, the idea that you make yourself into something, that you have to make yourself into something. Now, the, the main problem for me is that, as I said, it fails to, those contemporary uh, uh, typologies fail to identify that the individuality they talk about is a kind of elitist uh, individuality, and it fails to emphasize the, the most significant distinction between the left-hand path and the right-hand path for me. Now, if we, just to mention what the right-hand path is in contradistinction to perhaps indicated spectrum, the right-hand path generally refers to the Abrahamic religions or in, uh, in, in India, the yogic tradition, uh, the idea of union, the idea of adherence to a path, it, the less focus on the ego, uh, perhaps uh, the idea of submission uh, is there, and it's seen therefore to be quite conservative. Now, it's often described by the left-hand path people as collectivist, but I think that's an inaccurate description, and in fact, a lot of people who are on the, the, the left-hand path are quite in favor of managing collectivism. So we can't make distinctions that, that are are too simple. That there are certain, in both sides, there are positive and negative uh, negative sides. So on, on the right-hand path, the problem that can arise, the, uh, the greatest criticism, is that it becomes too ossified, too crystallized, and too repressive. So there is a repressive function or inherent in the adherence to authority associated with the right-hand path. And if I was to take an example, we might think of 
uh, Jared Manley Hopkins, the great English poet who became converted to Catholicism, became a Jesuit. He came to live in Ireland. He was very, very unhappy, uh, but he wrote fantastic poetry, which wasn't, it didn't come to public attention until after his death. He was very unhappy in Ireland, and uh, academics tend to say now that he had psychosexual problems or whatever. I'm not, I don't know about that, but he certainly had some kind of uh, repression within him of some type. And it was a very sad story, a very tragic story in, in the end. He dies when he's 44 of typhoid. I know where his grave is in, in Glasnevin. I've, I've been there a number of times. But he wrote some of the best poetry ever written in the English language. Uh, how to keep, is there any, is there none such, nowhere known some, brooch, bow or brooch, braid or brace, lace, latch, catch or key, to keep it beauty, beauty, beauty from vanishing away, words like that. He he expressed some of the profound, most profound mystical thoughts, and yet he couldn't really cope with being a, a, a professor of Greek in Dublin at the time, perhaps as it was difficult for an English man in the, in the political circumstances. And there was an, an awful lot of sadness, sadness there, and that in some ways, when you're a dear, he's a Jesuit, so, so when you're a Jesuit, you adhere to the rules, you do what you're told, even though you're highly evolved intellectually. And there's that repressive function. There's an Irish writer who I had uh, communicated with a few years ago when I wrote about a, a film he had, or a play that he had written called The Field. We'll talk about that some other time too. And he had said years, uh, years ago in Ireland that he believed that most of the people in the mental homes were there because of sexual repression. So it's, it's, a, real, it's a real factor in the equation. When the right-hand path becomes too legalistic, too authoritarian, uh, it can become repressive. But I, I, I would suggest that that is a spectrum. And again, we could start off on the, the right-hand side and suggest that at the extreme, we have a very legalistic situation, uh, an undue focus on rules and regulations. And we, we, we might go back to the Pharisees, the scribes uh, at the time of Jesus. So when Jesus comes along, he's arguing in favor of less focus on legalism. So he's antinomian. He's moving away in, in, in certain restraint, in certain contexts. So when we move across into the left-hand path, the slope of moral adherence or adherence to moral rules diminishes rapidly till at a certain point there's none. And on that side, we have black magic and all that that domain but it's not inevitable that's at one end of the left hand path and so to give a final example perhaps uh, before we go on if you don't mind uh, of a left hand path a classic example would be the agori in india and nepal now i've seen some of these gentlemen and, and ladies as well but i've seen, seen the the men in in nepal and they have a very distinctive path which focuses on embracing impurity. So it's in contradistinction, a, a reaction in a way to the Vedic, the Hindu, uh, Indian path of purity. And it's, it embraces impurity. It embraces taboos about the body, about bodily fluids. Uh, they, they drink out of human skulls, a bit like the skull and bones in the United States. <laughs> They drink out of skulls. They 
uh, engage in practices that are taboo, they eat taboo foods, and also they may engage, engage in, in black magic. So they may, there's, a, there's stories by people like Robert Svoboda has written about them, but it's quite well known that they, they live around charnel grounds or crematoria, and they engage in conjuring effectively with spirits, with dead bodies, uh, and they they seek to link to the, the mother goddess. So they may sit on a corpse and communicate with the spirits. Now, but that's that's one branch of it. There is a spiritual path there. I, I wouldn't take away from the people that are on a genuine spiritual path. The point is, there's a, there's a whole spectrum with positive and negative in, in, in both sides. While we're talking about right and left, it's hard to avoid the political implications uh, because we talk about uh, left-wing and right-wing politics. Is, do you think there's any correlation at all or is that completely tangential? I think there is a connection. I think there's, a, there's perhaps a stronger connection, again, as a matter of opinion. So I'm not, I'm not saying presenting any of these distinctions in a polarizing way because my path would be more in, in the middle path, and I, I would seek to, to draw people from both sides to the center. Uh, but if you look at arguments about the nature of people who are right-wing, the nature of people who are left-wing, there's arguments that left-wing people uh, have a greater tolerance of boundary-breaking, for example, uh, and they have a greater degree of openness compared with people uh, who are on the right who may be more conscientious and privilege the adherence to rules and established rules over novelty. And there's a, there's a kind of inherent tension there, especially in a world which is evolving tech, uh, technologically. And it, it manifests itself perhaps on the extremities, because if you look, for me, extremities on the right and on the left uh, both share the elements of control, which I would identify with the left-hand path. So for me, the, uh, the Bolsheviks and the Nazis have similarities. They have similarities which are consistent with the identification of, of people on the left-hand path. For example, uh, like Nietzsche might describe the ph philosophical basis, where you go beyond good and evil, where the world belongs, tomorrow belongs to me, as he said, which was used in the song, in Cabaret, to, to, the song Cabaret, at the end of it, if you remember, the Nazis are singing tomorrow, uh, the Hitler youth are singing tomorrow belongs to me. That, that Nietzsche said that. Um, so the idea that we have a small group that will control society who are in some way enlightened is, is one which links to both extremes, for example. Uh, and at certain stage, of course, we have a movement between them. But so... Again, in the central domain, the center gets excluded from a, a lot of these things. So in the center, I think that people can can move in a zigzag. Sometimes they might, for example, be left left leaning on social or sexual issues, but be more conservative on economic issues. So sometimes this polarization puts people into, into, into artificial camps and people on both sides have an incentive to divide people. And this is particularly important in the present time in the United States because the it's not long ago. I, I, I talked to people in Spain that lived in the Civil War situation. I've talked to people in Ireland that lived in the Civil War situation. It's very, very easy 
to polarise people. And there are other people who have an incentive to polarise people. So my emphasis in all this is to make sure that the, the silent majority in a kind of central spectrum with differences uh, begin, to, begin to, 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 to talk a bit more to each other and to protect the things that have been made over a period of time. And the last point I would make is we can see this left-right distinction, particularly in the distinction between romanticism and conservatism. And this, this comes back into ideas of magic as well. But if we see Shelley and Byron and classic romantic figures, we'd contrast that with the Dublin conservative thinker at the time who defined the idea of the sublime in, romantic, in romanticism, uh, Edmund Burke. So his view, for example, about the French Revolution was the problem with revolutions is you lose what was good beforehand and that the people fighting for something don't anticipate what they're going to lose as part of, of the revolution. So there is definitely a, a, a loose or, or, or some kind of affinity. But again, my hope for that is that people are a bit more complex and that we should emphasize complexity and pragmatism and seek the unifying possibilities as opposed to putting them into different camps. Well, I know that the uh, Kabbalistic tree of life diagram, which has influenced esoteric uh, thought in the West uh, quite a bit, uh, particularly the Order of the Golden Dawn uh, practitioners, it has a left hand, a right hand, and a central path. And it has pathways that sort of zigzag between as well, that really, uh, if you're thinking holistically, you want to have all of this in mind. We talk about two paths. But there's a unifying path in all this. There's the path between Scylla and Charybdis, which is another dichotomy we see in Greek legend. But that's correct. It's the middle path is, is critical. We have these two pillars, the pillars of the heaven in many contexts, but it's, it's in between is, is the critical link. And I think it's important in the Kabbalistic ideas uh, to, to, to bear in mind, there's, there's two dimensions to that. One, there's the idea that on a mystical level, that if you're opening up to the higher powers, that it's difficult to contain the higher powers. So they have to come in gradually. That, that was one idea. The lightning has to move. You can see that idea also in the PK man. When he, when he says, he talks about memory being important to have protection, and he, he worked with memory. And this is, this is an important idea in magic. And the suggestion for me is that if you don't have some capacity to control your, your brain and your will, that you can be overloaded in some sense. So that's one sense in which you have to manage energies which, which come into you. And certainly, I, I, I believe that the, the correct path in some ways is a zigzag approach. We oscillate between different, different sides. We can see this in the prodigal son, the prodigal son story where the in, in many ways, the prodigal son represents the exploratory bit where we, we move off to explore things, to try the LSD, to, to join the hippies, etc. And then we may move back in towards the center, may even move towards, towards the right. We can also see this politically, for example, and this is interesting that I, I, I have met the uh, is sometimes described as controversial politician, left-wing politician, uh, in Britain, George Galloway, and he was he was famous for being the leader of the anti-war movement. He's been consistently against military intervention 
in the Middle East. And that, that, was, that was his big thing, totally consistent. And I remember him saying that he remembers seeing some of the, the guys that were in behind intervention in a very direct way. And he remembers them giving out political leaflets that were from uh, on the left uh, years beforehand. So they had moved from one side to the other. But really, for a lot of people, it's a zigzag movement. We can see that in relation to William Blake. Uh, so he moves into an antinomian context, but he comes back and he moves. We can see it in relation to Swedenborg as well. Swedenborg explores kind of magical and esoteric practices. And has and then moves back into the mystical way, and 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 again, there's a zig, zigzag, a kind of s s uh, form in it. And in many ways, I, I I'd represent that. You could say it was the middle way in the Buddhist context. I often see it as a foreshore that there's a if we have the sea on one side and the land on the other, there's the intertidal zone, which sometimes is covered in sea. Sometimes it's a bit wet when the tide has gone out. Sometimes it's dry land. It's both. And it's neither at various times. So for most people, there is a zigzag. And that's reflected in most esoteric traditions with the idea of a division into three, with the middle path uh, allowing movement of energies at different times as appropriate, as uh, consistent with exploration and finding in the Taoist context the idea of dynamic balance, where we can find a degree of effortlessness, the Wu Wei concept. Now, you have talked about the extremes, and I'm under the impression that what you said, if, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that the extreme of the left-hand path is out-and-out -out black magic. Uh, uh, could you amplify what you meant by that? Well, well, well for me it is. I mean, be, I, 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 there has to be a spectrum. So if we say a person is on a left-hand path, it doesn't mean they're engaging in, in black magic. Sometimes people say left-hand path, is black magic and right-hand path is white magic. I think that distinction is too uh, is too stark, and I don't think that's true. I think there's a, a movement between it. Some people say it's all magic, and we can see it that there is a conflict. But it's again, it's more like a yin yang interaction. Um, Gurdjieff talks about this in relation to when in, in his, his ballet, the struggle of the magicians. There's a struggle between a white and and black magician. But for me, I think the spectrum starts. When you go beyond a certain point, and this is where we have the end of the the, the slippy slope of the of adherence to moral rules. When you go to a situation where you say, "Well, I'm not adhering to any rules. There's no moral rules. I'm beyond good and evil. I'm only answer to myself. I am a god. I'm the most important. The most important is for me to develop. My isolate intelligence may survive afterwards. I don't care about the here hereafter." Again, like Faust, a bit suspicious about whether there is life after death. So he'll, he'll take his chances. He will go for immortality. He will, again, we see that in Taoism as well. They can engage in black magic. But for me, it represents different things for different people. Uh, bad intention is certainly a feature of it. The ability to, or the desire to control others. The lack of empathy towards uh, other people. The uh, ability to inflict damage, deliberate damage, to go against the principles that exist at the core of all perennial philosophy. When you get into that dimension, where your ego is the most important thing, where your desire to control the world is the most important thing, where you don't care, you have no empathy for people. And as a lot of people in the Nietzschean tradition, 
they they look at the the common people as the herd. You can see this also in Shakespeare, Coriolanus, uh, who who is also recurs in the figure of Coriolanus Snow in the Hunger Games. So Coriolanus, we can see, has this inflated idea of himself. He's willing to betray Rome in the end. He doesn't care because his ego is the most important thing. So there is uh, there is a certain feature, a certain negative consequence of philosophies consistent with, say, Prometheanism or Luciferianism or uh, Satanism, which says, well, I'm above it all. I, I don't have to abide by that. What I do is most important. I am creating the world. The rest of the world doesn't matter. Now, that's in conflict to the idea in the Abrahamic religions, which say, says that anyone has the path to the divine. Everyone has that in them. You don't, you, you, you have to develop your spirituality, certainly, but you don't have to develop any strange egotistical uh, megalomaniac tendencies in order to, to, to enforce it. So um, th th there are gradations. Now, for example, with the Agori, the fact that they engage with skulls and all that doesn't, I, I don't think that's necessarily, in, that's not indicative of, of, of black magic. If you, if you look, for example, you can see it in the Catholic tradition in Rome, there's a church called uh, Chiesa Santa Maria del uh, Concezione uh, de Cappuccini, about the Capuchin um, crypt, which has nearly 4,000 human skulls and body parts. And the Marquis de Sade was there and he was very impressed with it. So you have this tradition of dealing with death in the mainstream religion. So we have to be a bit careful. I, I do think, uh, but again, for me, if you, it's that feature of doing harm. And if you look at Manley Hall, he believed that science could could be black magic. Or, or if you look at C.S. Lewis, he believed that the the damage on that side was done by the innocuous people, uh, clean shaven in their in their offices. So uh, it may not look the, the the evil or the or the damage or the black magic may not look like or as we expect, and I wouldn't be quick to jump to judge people on that, but I would associate with that that, that the antithesis of the desire to do good, to see people uh, in a benevolent way. Uh, so malevolence is another another possible contradistinction. You also mentioned the uh, Faust legend, and, and I think it's very interesting. I've I read recently several social critics talk about Western civilization as a whole as being very Faustian, and so it it makes me wonder. You know, does is is that suggesting that as a culture we've already sold our souls to the devil? Well, yes, in one sense. Uh, yes, if we go back to Spengler and those ideas and Nietzsche again, and it wasn't just him, because across Europe at that time, we can see it also with Strindberg in Sweden. Uh, Nietzsche corresponded with Strindberg, and they both had similar views, which had come about through the Enlightenment and uh, Darwinism and ideas. Okay, well, all that stuff that we believed before wasn't true and Christianity was bad, and we have to be anti-Christian. That was fairly common across Europe. It wasn't just manifest in one or two philosophers. So Strindberg had come to similar views at that time. He changed subsequently, and he went in a different direct direction from Nietzsche. But 
we have this idea that we're in a decadent kind of end of control of the uh, end of empire, end of Western civilization, and to a certain extent, there is an effort to drive it to, to drive the car into the wall. So the the Faustian idea was seen to be descriptive, and we've we've moved from a situation where the idea of European culture as merely being described as Faustian to an idea where many people are saying Faust was good, Faust is a kind of role model, Faust is seeking knowledge, we should all seek that path. And to me, that represents another feature which is left-hand path of uh, disintegration. We have creation and destruction. So the left-hand path is more emphasized on a destructive notion. So I, I, I think it makes sense that the the elevation of the left-hand path, certain, certain. I'm talking about certain paths within there. If you if you take Prometheism, Luciferian, Satanism, it may be not inevitably, but it may be part of that desire to destroy Western culture, as an idea that, well, it's a destructive idea. But I think it will have that tendency. Uh, that, that that is part of the idea of dissolution. Uh, it's. Some of these things could only come to the surface in Western culture because in other societies they wouldn't be allowed to. And in many ways, they may indicate that it was never going to be able to be sustainable because the center cannot hold. So Faust is seen to be good and associated with that is an idea then, okay, well, let's move up a gear, let's accelerate, let's go the whole hog because we're doomed anyway. And I don't, I don't think that's that's a, a a a wise path, and I think it's 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 a a dangerous path. The idea that there's no restraint, and the idea that we should destroy ourselves, or we should allow ourselves to be destroyed, or in, and in fact, there there are certain ideological forces. We could take the again the Gramsci and the the hegemonic, the anti-hegemonic forces, which say, well, emphasize those negative, destructive, dis, dissolute tendencies. And we can have the breakdown of Western society so that we can replace it with something else. The utopianism that comes in. The problem for me is that most of these utopian ideas are materialist based. They will be against the spirit. So the last point on that is I think that all roads on these in many of these contemporary applications of the left hand path, uh, not everyone, but in certain ones, leads to Rome, and the Rome is transhumanism. Because transhumanism, the fusion of humankind with machines, is totally consistent with all of these ideas about that individual, enhanced, seeking immortality, living in the here and now, extending life, not having to worry about the hereafter, for specialized groups, not for everyone, because if everyone thinks they're going to be enhanced, that's not going to happen. And then we can have the disrespect for the the mass, which is inherent in the philosophy, uh, reduce the population. There's an elite there that can conquer the heavens with their enhanced bodies that don't have to worry about dying, etc. So I, I I think transhumanism is the inevitable cause or the inevitable result of a number of these tendencies and encouragement of those tendencies and also those certain political tendencies. I I think there's a lot of young people that will be very disappointed when they see where they're genuine desire to change the world and a genuine desire to create a new utopia will be manipulated towards. 
Wow, that's a lot to digest. <laughs> We're going to have to come back to the topic of transhumanism uh, in a future discussion because uh, it's a very rich, uh, it's a deep topic. Uh, so many people, especially young people, are their lives are immersed in technology. They learn to use computers now at the age of three or even younger. Uh, let me jump around to a, a different notion. Um, I've observed when I travel in Asia and even in Europe, the idea that there are demons guarding every temple. You see images, demonic looking images frequently, in, especially in Asian uh, cultures. But even in, in the West, you have gargoyles on all, all of the cathedrals. The, the implication seems to be that uh, these demonic figures are actually agents of the divine. They're not uh, totally enemies of the divine. I think that's right. I, I think there is that idea, uh, a broader idea, uh, and particularly in Oriental contexts, where they represent different aspects and they're not inherently representative of uh, evil forces. And in particular, where... In, the, in, in particular traditions in Buddhism or whatever in Tibet, where they have drawn on the previous uh, spiritual traditions of the people and integrated them, uh, then they integrated and had to respect certain pre-existing demons. And demons are often the gods of the people that were there beforehand. So the uh, the idea the, of the ideas of demons, devils, satans, etc., they often have a relationship to gods that might have been worshipped beforehand. And then there's the idea that we create these certain demons. And, and in the Bardo plane, that some of these are a reflection of our, of our own minds. So they're uh, anticipations of what is to come in certain respect. On, on the opposite side, there is a, a book published this year uh, called Demonic Foes by Richard Gallagher, who is a psychiatrist who has worked with the Catholic Church in the context of exorcism. So he has seen uh, thousands of exorcisms and he describes uh, certain features of the exorcisms and the current things. Now he's, he's, he's not arguing that it's everywhere, he's arguing that it's exceptional and that you have to go through all the medical uh, uh, examinations to identify that it, there's no other, other reason for it. But he gives examples, for example, of a uh, a woman who was a, sat uh, a Satanist priest uh, who was possessed and who during the exorcism levitated. There's another interesting example, levitated. This is, seems to be a feature associated with certain of, the, uh, of these exorcisms. Uh, and there's certain other indicators uh, of possession, like superhuman strength, for example, or ability to know information that you can't know. And he's very, very clear that there are entities in the unseen world which are malevolent and are, that seem to want to destroy uh, people and seem to want to destroy humans. Uh, I believe in that as well. So I don't think that's, that's a strange view. So uh, there's a bit of a danger that we have a certain relativism which reduces everything to a story. Uh, and oh, it's just a story and an archetype. Uh, you've discussed some of these things before. I know with your friend James Driscoll, as, uh, as far as I remember, and he talked uh, very well about the archetypes and Satan and Lucifer. 
Um, but it doesn't mean that there are, there's not real manifestations of evil spirits. So uh, that, that, that's a point that we, we shouldn't dismiss those things. I think, I think the archetypal description of, of demons and Satan, for example, is going to be enhanced in the future when we, we begin to be more accurate. Because the, the, the idea of an archetype, we, we, we accept it in the Jungian sense, but I think it's time to add on to those ideas. For example, uh, one idea that I would suggest is if we look at Jung noticed this, that uh, the devil was often associated with the gut and the stomach. And he, he saw this in, 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 in looking at the Christian mystics that they often identified the devil as in some way associated with the nether regions. Now we can, we can obviously use the sexual desires and all that kind of stuff, but with the stomach. And uh, it, it's a recurrent thing. And in some of the mystical and alchemical drawings, you can see the devil on the stomach. And I, I, I was beginning to wonder, well, but can we add to the archetypes? For example, scientists are now explaining about the gut-brain connection. And there was a very good article coming out in China, actually, from the Chinese Academy of, of Science, which was looking at the, the gut-brain gut connection in relation to psychology. And we have to remember that the enteric nervous system has neurons and is, this, is a separate system from the two other main uh, systems, nervous systems in the body. So if you look at uh, the Salem witch, witch trials, for example, and there is that explanation of ergo and ergotism and, and the the poisoning, uh, the possible poisoning of the girls that led to the idea that they were possessed. Again, we have the idea that through the stomach and through ingestion, we can alter our state that may manifest itself in a way that is perceived to be demonic. And again, we have in the ayahuasca uh, altered consciousness ideas. We have to ingest something into the intestine and the, the gut is shaped like, the, like a snake as well. So the gut-brain connection is becoming very, very important in medicine. They're beginning to understand that it's linked to a lot of mental conditions. So it may be that the, the, the brain that could have been the first brain, the enteric nervous system, is the fallen angel in relation to the, the first brain. As it takes over, there is still this physiological remnant in the body which has certain manifestations. So I think there are all kinds of explanations we can look at. But for me, in a mystical context, I believe that there are higher planes, that there are lower beings which are unhappy. And another, you talking about love and thinking about concepts of love and Sorokin. If you look at Evelyn Underhill, when she talked about the spirit that possesses the woman in, in, uh, in the novel we talked about last time, Column of Dust, this entity, I won't call it dim, this entity was wandering and what characterized the entity for Evelyn Underhill was it didn't know what love is. So there's an, an interesting idea that the demonic is refers to spirits that have no capacity to understand love. And there is a, a force that comes from there. So, so, but but I, I do believe there are real forces there. Well, it seems as if one of the issues here is whether the universe itself is dualistic in, in, in the sense that there's a war going on between good and evil, a battle in heaven for, for our very souls, or, or whether the universe is somehow unified and, and that what we 
perceived to be evil is actually uh, operating uh, out of the wholeness of things. And ultimately, uh, as the Buddhists might say, all the demons are working in the service of the Buddha. I can understand that view. And it's true if we are the Buddha looking down on, on the whole of creation or if we're up there. But there's a problem with that view. And this is where if we look at the hippies and the counterculture and the, 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 the context that you know so well about. Now, for me, the, the hippie movement and in particular reading books like How the Hippies Saved Physics and you know a lot of people that were in that book, you, you know those characters very, very well, the friends of yours. And it's a very, very interesting time. Now, the analogy for me uh, historically is if we go back to uh, London in the late 1700s, early 1800s, because we had the imperial context, we had the uh, empire spreading, we had technology, we had investigations of the body, we had experiments on bodies in, in uh, public context. It's okay for scientists to mess around with dead bodies. It's not okay for religious people in India. But uh, So we had all that context. So we had Shelley and we had Mary Shelley. And I get Mary Shelley as, 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 as a figure that I have great respect for. Now, I believe when she wrote Frankenstein that she had been immersed in that milieu uh, that uh, Shelley, Byron, who are, again left-hand path, celebrate uh, Satan, the figure of Satan, uh, celebrate Prometheus. They, they're revolutionary. They want to change the world. They're romantic. Now, she sees a danger in this, and that's why she writes uh, Frankenstein, because she sees the danger of this movement. Although she's sympathetic to the context, when she has her vision of Frankenstein, I believe it to be a deep mystical vision. And she saw the dangers of that. So while she embraced it, she was very, very clear. And I think she is, in a way, the, the, the center path. And remember, her mother was Mary Wollstonecroft and her father was, was uh, William Godwin. They were incredibly significant, incredibly significant figures. I have a lot of respect for her, her mother as well that wrote uh, on Vindication of the Rights of Women in response to Thomas Paine. And, and they would have connections with Blake as well, who was around at the time. So then we have uh, Samuel Taylor Coldridge. So he was at uh, Mary Shelley's house. Again, it's in North London. We talked about that area in our, in our talk on esoteric geography, in that area. So uh, Coldridge was at the house. Um, Mary Shelley was hiding behind the couch, and she was told to go to the sofa, as you say, over there. She was told to go to bed, and Coldridge suggested that she he, uh, she could stay up late uh, so she she could hear him recite the rhyme of the ancient mariner i think it was now coleridge is the anticipation of the hippie movement you know experimentation with drugs with psychedelics open to new ideas open to the occult open to science open to uh, sympathetic towards the causes not willing to be identified with the establishment so in, in many ways, for me, the hippie movement was another manifestation of that milieu that, that was in London. But it didn't necessarily solve the problems. And the question would be, did, and this is, this is the criticism that Edmund Burke had of romant, romanticism. He said, and he 
it seems that he was romantic or inclined towards that movement initially. But he said the problem with the romantics is they fall in love with the feeling and they're willing to put the feeling first, even above the suffering of others. So the love of the romantic for that that elevated, sublime feeling they get when they believe that they're doing the right thing uh, can even triumph over context when they're not doing the right thing. So it's there is a there is a recurrent issue about the limitations of romanticism, which I think Goethe began to understand. He started more inclined towards the romantics and then changed his his perspective. So. The, uh, again, there's a, there, there is a connection there between the romantic and conservative disposition and where the balance is between them. So, of course, all the great things that came out of the hippie movement, but then did it achieve all the things? And the people that come afterwards, did it establish things that persist? Of course, it did in some ways. In other ways, it didn't. So, There's also a question, I think, uh, when we talk about the left hand and the right hand path uh, of war and peace. Uh, you find in, in Orthodox Hindu culture, the, the great classical work is the Bhagavad Gita, in which the, the deity, Krishna, is, is telling uh, Arjuna, the warrior, to, to go into battle against his own relatives and, and, and to kill them because that's his duty. And, and he says, it doesn't matter. You can't destroy life. You can't create life. Only God can do that. So whatever destruction you cause uh, is irrelevant. Uh, you, you get the same idea even in uh, Stanislav Grof's book, The Cosmic Game, in which he, he suggests that from a detached perspective of, uh, you know, the cosmic deity, uh, all of the human dramas of war and peace and life and death are, are just sort of uh, a game. That sounds like Groff is, is putting himself in the position of the detached deity, but uh, I understand this and I have great respect for his work and holotropic breeding and that. But uh, we have to be careful about that. I, I think there is a danger of that moral relativism. And it does raise, uh, look at it from the opposite perspective. A criticism I see and I hear from some of your viewers are that you mystics are all passive. You mystics don't have anything to say in relation to the evolution of the world. Um, and I think it, it really is a failed, uh, it really is a misperception of what the mystic path is. I mean, we can see that in Gurdjieff, that it's the white magician that wins over the black magician. So the uh, the idea that they're passive and not going to uh, to engage in affairs because they're mystic is, is wrong. And I'll give an example. It might, might, might not seem like an obvious connection, but Krishnamurti would be a person in a way that goes through the center. So he's very, very careful about not getting involved in things which are too esoteric, he's very pragmatic. He's very careful about not getting dragged into institutional stuff. And he taught, he keeps focusing on the individual. So Jiddu Krishnamurti, because uh, not the uh, the other Krishnamurti, because I think you've interviewed the the other uh, Krishnamurti. UG. Yeah, yes. So uh, Jiddu uh, Krishnamurti, he, he goes between and he, uh, he, he has a path which is very non-prescriptive in many ways, which seems to me to be starting from a position 
of compassion and intelligence and believes that evolution comes from there, following that path, avoiding getting involved in the other path, so taking the middle path. Now, a person who was influenced directly by Krishnamurti was Bruce Lee. So Bruce Lee's philosophy of fighting is taken from his reading of Krishnamurti. If you compare the two of them, they're remarkably similar. Now, so it may not seem that Krishnamurti could say something that was useful to one of the greatest uh, unarmed uh, combat martial artists uh, ever. But he could do, because the point is that when the mystics and the spiritual leaders are identifying truth, the truth is applicable in a range of contexts. And the, the mystics shouldn't be withdrawing from battles which are going on in society. The, what they should be doing is seeking to create conditions where those forces don't operate. I can't, I can't believe that people would say, for example, that the Iraq war was a mistake, that the higher, that God would think was just a little mistake, a little, you know, tiff between his children on the earth. I think there are, there are policy decisions which are negative, which are wrong, which are destructive, which should be avoided. Uh, and so I, I'm, anti-war in that context. It doesn't mean that I, 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 I'm, I'm not a pacifist in that sense, that I wouldn't fight in the appropriate circumstances. But uh, in relation to the spiritual evolution, we want to be able to, if you believe in spiritual evolution, you believe that people uh, don't want to destroy and they will want to be creative if we create the conditions in which that happens. There are people that enjoy the destructive path. There wouldn't be so much destruction if people didn't uh, enjoy it. I, w I was uh, I was up in Archangel. Uh, I, I was I was doing some classes up there, and I was taken out to a monastery, and the monastery was re-established because, of course, Stalin destroyed all the uh, monastery uh, monasteries in the communist system, destroyed uh, religion. So you could see where the they used they poured concrete all over the the holy places. And they were building up, rebuilding this monastery. And the the abbot, the leader of the, of the monastery, and it was, again, it was, it was, it was quite a bit out in, in the countryside, near nothing. Uh, he had been a submarine commander, as far as I remember. So he'd seen the other side of the thing, but he, he was on his spiritual path. And we had very interesting conversations. Spiritual evolution doesn't involve us killing other people. It's... It, it, it's it's a last resort in all the spiritual traditions. There are circumstances in which it can happen, but we should be avoiding war. And also, civil war is a context which we should always involve and always seek to avoid. And that's where the, the principles of right words, for example, about not being drawn into a context. There's also a kind of psycho psychopathic element which can encourage us, which can manipulate us, which can draw us into battle against our better nature. So the appeal to the better angels of our nature is an important aspect. But I don't believe in this idea that there's no such thing as evil, that the First World War was just, uh, you know, uh, uh, interaction between different groups that's explicable without any, any looking at the deeper thing, the destruction. And I think that th there are certainly people that want to rule by force but that's against 
spiritual evolution. If we are convincing enough to that people begin to see that they they evolve individually, well, there you get a critical force to to counteract some of these these issues. If you look at, of course, when we're talking about left hand path, we could mention. Uh, Crowley or Bard, uh, Bardon, Franz Bardon is, is, is a popular figure in, in Europe, it seems, in relation to the alternative path. But Crowley talked about embracing murder and mayhem. And he wasn't, he wasn't being flippant about some of these issues. Because if you commit yourself to a destructive path and there's no moral principles involved, well, then you're going to get some of these things. And if you, uh, a film which is interesting in this context, I don't know if you've ever seen it, is Ducky Suckers, uh, which was Sergio Leone. It's an interesting film about civil war and about the Mexican Revolution and uh, with Rod Steiger and James Coburn. And it's a fascinating exploration of how people can be manipulated into revolutions and not prosper. And there's a, the character played by uh, Rod Steiger, uh, Juan Miranda, says to an Irish revolutionary, actually, in, in the thing. He says, don't talk to me about revolutions. What happens with, I know about revolutions. What happens is the people that read the books come to the poor people and they say, we need a change. And then the poor people change things. And then the people that read the books sit around their tables and they eat and eat and eat and talk and talk and talk. And what happens to the poor people? They're dead. So, so the idea that the, the people that, that, that are forced to do these wars, they will suffer. The civilians will, will suffer. The weak will suffer. But you don't care about the weak if you're coming from certain traditions on the left-hand path. It's very, very clear if you look at the Nietzschean tradition, the weak are hated for their weakness. So the, you, you, don't have to, you don't have to concern yourself with these. Concerning yourself with weakness is, is a bad thing. So that character was correct in that the, again, charmed circles can begin to manipulate other people to engage in the dirty work uh, for the uh, enhancement of their own egotistical desires. Well, you've given me so much to think about, James. Uh, it's a very profound discussion. But before we leave, I want to come back to the story you started to tell of uh, Krishnamurti and Bruce Lee, the famous martial artist. You, you mentioned that Bruce Lee took great inspiration from Krishnamurti, but uh, I'd like to know just how he did that. I, I, I like fighting in, in, in the context of ritual, disciplined, uh, unarmed combat, the, the 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 sports, the competitive thing, boxing uh, or UFC or whatever. I, I, I like that idea. I think it's a very natural instinct for people to fight with each other. So when we're talking about Bruce Lee, we're talking about a person who's not waging war against other people. He's not pressing a button that inflicts death thousands of miles away. He's engaging in what people have engaged with for thousands of years, unarmed combat. So karate is empty hand. It means that you're, you're, you're fighting without weapons. So that's a kind of more civilized way than utilizing weapons. So Bruce Lee, when he's engaging in this, is engaging in something which is more akin, although people don't believe it to be the case, of a contest in, in, like chess, where there's a range of movements one can engage in. So in that context, the person has to marshal their wits their movements, their skill against another person. And in that context, there are certain approaches. 
for example, if you decide, Jeffrey, that you're going to engage in some martial arts, you're in, have you ever engaged in any martial art? No, I have not. Bear in mind that the, the, the purpose of, of contemporary martial art is in that context. So we're not, they're not using guns in, in, in the ring. It's, it, it, it's a respectful uh, context. There's rules, regulation. And of course, if we look in the Japanese traditions, we see that they've embraced a lot of Zen spirituality. So it's a practice for, for enlightenment. So uh, when you're looking at the martial arts, you might go to some of the more esoteric left-hand path, if you like, ideas, where you see the guys and they're doing strange things and they can kill you with mental forces, uh, you know, from their brain. And they've, they, there's, a, there's been a lot of debunking of that type of, of, of martial arts in recent terms uh, because it doesn't work. And when shown in context, it, it, it doesn't operate. So uh, Bruce Lee... Uh, looked at all the styles and he he began then to reject style and he began to use as he's articulating his philosophy uh, began to take principles from Krishna Murphy to explain it to explain like how water behaves how uh, there is no particular style there's no particular answer that we have to look at inner qualities in order to bring it to whatever activity that we engage in so in that sense it reflects the idea of the Taoists, which again, in the Shaolin tradition, the idea that you you find a certain effortlessness after you have explored a range of things. And in particular, he believed that a lot of these very, very structured approaches don't work because in life we, we encounter things which are not structured. So there are certain, there are certain practically applicable principles that he could he could see when he read Krishnamurti when he was I think he was injured at a particular stage but again I'd emphasize in this context he's not going out to hurt people in many ways the that martial artist should be the people that are not using violence they shouldn't be fighting out of the street you know in the chip shop on a Saturday night they shouldn't be doing that they should manifest certain qualities of restraint and discipline but it recognizes that we are creatures who have evolved to struggle. And it argues or suggests that it's better to manifest those in a contained way. And an example we could use is if we go back in Irish history is where we have the idea of trial by, trial by battle or trial by champion. Where instead of having the two, two groups of people kill each other, we get the best one and we, they fight each other. The benefit of that is that we don't waste all the life and that the warrior, the individuals that represent the tribe can do it on behalf of the, the group so that we, we don't destroy human life and we don't have this massive destruction uh, of human life. So that's, that's the kind of context that, that, um, that he informed Bruce Lee on. It sounds, in a way, a little bit like the concept of the religion of no religion. Yes, I, I think that's right. I think that, and I, I, I trained, for example, with a high-level karate uh, guy. I'm not a high-level, I just trained with him. But uh, So he's a, he's a high-level karateka. So they would have a very, very rigid 
way of working, a very, very structured way. And if he was coming to apply that in a different context, or in, in, in a fighting context, he would have to adapt because the structure may work or it may not do. So there are, there are lessons that we can extrapolate. Not that we all go around fighting, and, but there, there are lessons about human nature. So all of these things are about human growth and how we grow as people in whatever ways. And a lot of martial arts, for example, is dealing with your fears or encountering your fears or learning to be, uh, as I say, comfortable with the uncomfortable. I do a little bit of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and you can often be in a position where someone is sitting on top of your head for a bit and you, in those contexts or whatever, in a very uncomfortable position, you have to learn to relax. You have to learn to be able to let go and not panic or whatever. So there are lessons in these things that are applicable in a whole range of contexts. And the tradition of spirituality and the connection between spirituality and that individual tradition, going back to books like the, the Book of Five Rings by uh, Miyamoto, Miyamoto Mushashi, for example, there are, there are spiritual lessons in there. There are different ways of looking at things. So um, it doesn't answer the big questions, but in our society, we can, uh, we can engage in certain ritualized disciplines, expressions of those natures. Uh, and I, I, I think that people that engage in the, that type of combat are generally not in favor of, of going out and, and extrapolating from there because they, 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 they have a genuine sense of the consequences of, 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 of violence. That, that, that's a generalization, but I, I think there's, there's some truth in that at least. It also seems to me it sort of comes down to be here now, be in the moment, and understand the requirements of the moment. If you're rolling around on the ground and uh, grappling with someone, and in judo or in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and their objective is to choke you or to get your arm in a position where they could break it or break your leg or some other thing, their objective notionally is to inflict a damage on you, which would represent death in a real world context so in that position when someone is trying to get their hand into a position which means that you have possibly six or ten seconds of space to breathe before you pass out well then you can't focus on anything else so you have to have a hundred percent concentration you can't be thinking oh what will i have for dinner so there's a very it's a very grounding way and literally because you're on the ground to allow the forces in the physical in the in, in the physical world to express themselves now uh, I, I think it's very very useful for learning lessons i know that there are certain christians that say that these things are evil and, and, and now it, it's just beyond my comprehension the same as with yoga and that i find that i find it absurd they don't seem to be sometimes as critical when they're engaging in or promoting war against foreign countries but they can get they can get strangely obsessed with what consenting adults do <laughs> in their spare time and the same thing applies uh, to sex as well and, and the the repressive approach to sexuality and, and to the human body uh, which which can happen on the on the right hand path uh, as well um, so the, 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 the traditions of fighting are universal in all 
cultures and there are warrior codes and spiritual traditions and there are ways that people it's a different way for people to learn about themselves it's a different way to manifest their fears it's a different way to confront their fears different way to 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 uh, empower themselves to get a sense that they have control because a lot of stress as far as i have read about from from uh psychotherapist writing or psychology is about the sense that you don't have control over what's happening so that that's where stress comes from a lot of the traditions of say martial arts are about being able to manifest control and then through the evolution of that control to get in a position that you are so relaxed in an inner state that you can be a hundred percent there at a time when you need to, so that you can have a relaxed response to the uh, to the whatever situation that comes out, that it's it's learned internally, and that the adrenaline is not going to come in and freeze your your muscles, so that you can't react to a strange situation. It's a similar thing I've noticed in 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 some contexts where people are confronted with an emergency situation. Unfortunately, a lot of people freeze. And they, 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 they become unable to respond to the situation because they, they panic. So in a lot of these, these traditions, they encourage people, they're encouraging people to be able to deal with what they encounter when they encounter it. So I, I don't see them generally. Of course, there's going to be some crazy people who are using them for bad reasons. That's always there. We can't account for that. But in the general situation, a lot of people... They, they engage with other people, they learn respect, they also learn respect of the opposing force. Because if you engage with someone else and you begin to get respect simply for their presence, and it, it enables one not to have an elevated idea such as can happen in the, the magical threat, you can begin to create a great huge self-image of yourself it's very very difficult to do that if you engage in some of these practices where you're in fact you you must lose your ego you must be willing to be submitted to have someone dominate you in in, in that physical encounter as you're learning so i do think it's a healthy it's a healthy mental path as one of the many paths uh, to 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 impersonal growth James Tunney, this has once again been a wonderful conversation. It's really stimulated me uh, to think in so many different directions. Uh, I would encourage our viewers to watch this interview twice uh, because <laughs> it, it has so much depth in it. I, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. And uh, I'm also very grateful to be able to let our viewers know that we plan even more conversations. Thank you very much. Uh, just one last point, if you don't mind. Thinking about the left path today, I was thinking about uh, the film My Left Foot, which was based on the autobiography of a Dubliner, uh, Christy Brown, who some of my family would have met. My, I know my father met him. And when we're talking about these things, uh, he, was, he was a man that had suffered greatly at the end of his life, the start of his life. He suffered from cerebral palsy. So he had 13 siblings and his mother helped him and encouraged him so that he could wiggle his toes to enable him to write and paint. And with the 
hugely restricted uh, movements and abilities that he had, he was able to become a writer, a poet, uh, and a painter. So when we're talking about who's weak and who's not weak and the limitations that other people see in other people, the human spirit is not weak and the human spirit is very, very strong of him, himself, his family, and his mother in particular, who in those contexts, a working class family in Dublin, was able to facilitate him with all his limitations to find the best version of himself against extremely strong limitations. So uh, another point to finish off in, we can't be dispirited either personally in relation to circumstances as we encounter them, we have to be resilient and deal with them, and we can't allow other people, whether scientists or magicians or elites or groups, to dispirit us, to tell us that we don't have spirit, to tell us that we are not part of the divine order, to tell us that there's no such thing as consciousness, that you don't have consciousness and that you're not as important as some conscious agents and machines. That, that's the last point. So thank you again. appreciate, as always, the, the conversations and I look forward to taking up some of the threads in the future. Thank you. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.